You know, we celebrate lots of things here at Genesis for lots of different reasons, but man, it is just fun to celebrate baptism and watching people make that decision to follow Jesus. They can look back on that day and say, you know, that was the day that I said I'm done with my life and I'm starting a new life with Jesus. So let's celebrate those people one more time. That was awesome. Welcome to the Carmel campus at Genesis Church. My name's Jerry, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you don't know me, I'd love to meet you afterwards. Now, I know it's not good to assume things, right? You know what happens when you assume things, but I'm going to assume that all of you have heard the phrase, there's no such thing as a dumb question, right? You've heard this before. If you're a parent, you've probably shared this with your kiddos. You encourage them to ask their questions, and you say, look, go ahead, there's no such thing as a dumb question question, or if you have ever been a student, or if you're a student right now, your, your professor, your teacher, your instructor encourages you to ask questions. Why is that? Because learning is part of life, and one of the best ways to learn is to ask questions. And so we say, go ahead, there's no such thing as a dumb question. And wouldn't it be nice if it were true? <laughs> wouldn't it be nice if there really was no such thing as a dumb question? I mean, Let's be honest, we've all been there before. Someone raises their hand and you're thinking, oh man, they have a track record. This is going to be good. And they ask their questions. And here's how you know it's an awkward question. It's a, it's a dumb question. People look one of three places. You look at your shoes, you look at the corner of the room like you're staring off into space, or you stare at everybody else's face and you like, as if to say, I can't believe they asked that question. Or maybe someone giggles or worse yet, everybody laughs out loud, letting the person know that was a dumb question. They wish they could die and just be taken off the planet immediately and never have to see another human, right? I mean, it's the worst. It's awkward for everybody, but it is especially awkward if you're the person asking the question. Well, I had this happen to me recently, and it wasn't in a meeting or a classroom. It was at a help desk at a hardware store. I was, it was Friday afternoon. I was working on a project. I ran out of stuff. I thought, I got to go get some more materials. But I, what I really need is to ask somebody a question. And I'm going to go to my favorite hardware store that shall remain unnamed because they've got these people in these vests that indicate that they're there to help answer questions. And so I tracked down a guy in a vest and I asked my question. And as soon as the question mark left my mouth, I knew it was a dumb question. And apparently I was wasting my time in his. Now, he wasn't overtly rude to me. But he made me feel like people like me should rent and call the landlord instead of owning our own home because I was going to burn something down. You know, I was like, and what I wanted to say was, bro, there's no such thing as a dumb question. You probably need to take your vest off right now, right? We've all been there. We have questions that we want answered. They're important to us. And we find somebody, we're looking for somebody that we can trust to ask or we work up the courage and we ask it. We think, oh, I hope that wasn't a dumb, I hope that wasn't a dumb question. Well, if you can relate to that fear, that anxiety, I have some great news for you because our culture has developed this magical little phrase, four magical words that allows you the freedom to ask every dumb question you ever desired, and you get to deflect the shame of feeling dumb and blame it on someone else. It's this magical phrase, asking for a friend. If you haven't used it, you should use it, right? And I don't know who invented this phrase, but I think that they deserve a star of, uh, on the Walk of Fame in Hollywood, or if there's still room on Mount Rushmore, we should put their face up there because they're giving us all the freedom to ask all of our dumb questions. At the very least, they deserve a bobblehead, okay? Can we just agree to that? If you do something cool in our culture, you deserve a bobblehead. Now, I want you to take a moment to think of the genius of this phrase because it acknowledges the fact that someone somewhere has a question that they want to ask, but they're afraid to ask it, so they've entrusted you to ask somebody for them. That's a lot of responsibility. I wish I had thought about this in the hardware store. I would have said, hey, look, man, 
I realize that's a dumb question. I'm just asking for a friend, right? He's an idiot. He probably will burn his house down. Can you just give me what I need so I can get out of here? Now, asking for a friend has a life of its own on social media. If you didn't know this, there's a hashtag. People will go out and ask some hilarious questions. One, of the, one that came up in, life, in real life this week for me, a buddy asked me this question. This is true. A buddy really did ask me this question. When you order carry out and you go to pick it up, are you supposed to tip the person that hands you your food? He said, I'm just asking for a friend. I'm not, I'm not greedy. I'm just, I just want to know what, what's socially acceptable, right? How many of you like chips and salsa or chips and queso? All right, it's okay to raise your hand. I do. Here's one. I'm asking for a friend on this one. Is it socially acceptable to eat your weight in queso? I mean, I would never, that's disgusting. I would never do that. I've probably done it a time or two, but I'm just asking for my friend, right? If you're a parent of young children, here's one. This is, I'm going to just ask this one for me. How long do I have to wait after I wake up to lay down and take a nap, right? I'm asking for my very lazy and tired friend. My personal favorite, I found this one online and I thought this was hilarious because I've done it. I don't know if you've done it, but I'm, I'm just asking for my friend. Is it wrong to develop road rage when walking behind someone that's slow at the grocery store? <laughs> right? I mean, not that you've done that. Your laughter indicates that maybe you know somebody that's done that at some point in time, right? You're just asking for a friend, right? Now, we laugh at questions like that because they're hilarious. That's like everyday life type stuff. But what about, what about when your questions hit a little more closer to home? What about like when you're having marriage trouble? Well, who do you ask then? Right? It's kind of hard to ask for a friend. Uh, my friend has a wife, and she's, I'm just asking, you know, yeah, uh, or your kids are flaking out. And you know, it's, it's, the closer it gets to your real life situation, the harder it is to ask the question, but what about? What about when it has to do with God? Like, you don't want to seem like you don't have any faith, but maybe you or one of your friends have ever wondered a question like this If God is so good, then why is this world that He created so screwed up? Right? I mean, I'm just asking for a friend. I trust Him. I'm just curious right? One that I had when I was very early as a Christian. I, didn't, I never asked this. I just kind of observed. I was told that we were saved by grace and there were no rules. But I learned that somebody somewhere was making rules about what to wear and what to eat and what to drink. And so one of my questions that I wanted to ask for a friend was, hey, if there's no rules, I'm just curious, what are the rules when it comes to following Jesus? I wish somebody would post those somewhere so I know what to do and what to not do. Or if Jesus said we shouldn't judge other people, why are Christians so judgmental? Right? Those are just questions that we have. And the truth is, we're all looking for questions or answers to questions like that. But let's be honest, we're a little anxious to ask them out loud because we don't want to feel dumb or ignorant or uneducated. That's why we're starting this series, Asking for a Friend. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some tough questions, some common questions that people have when it comes to wondering about who God is, what he's like, and even what it means to following, what it, what it means to follow Jesus. Now, I'm excited to jump into this series, but before we do, I want to lay some ground rules because there's lots of different places you could go to look for answers to questions like this. You could ask Alexa, you could ask Siri, you could Google it. You're going to get all kinds of answers. Wikipedia, don't trust Wikipedia, don't ever trust Wikipedia, right? We would want you to know here at Genesis, when it comes to answering questions like this, we begin our search in Scripture because we believe that God has revealed things that are true about life. And so that's where we're going to begin. We're going to go to the author of life to answer our deepest, darkest questions about life. So with that in mind, I just want to jump into our first question. And here's why I like this question so much. Because no matter whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God, I think we're all curious about this one because it doesn't just have to do with life here and now. More importantly, it has to do with what happens 
after we die. And so that might be one of the ways you could ask this question. What happens after we die? Or what does the Bible have to say about the afterlife, right? Those are two different ways you could ask the question. And there's lots of places we could begin to look in Scripture to find an answer to that question. But I want to get a little more specific because the more specific your question is, the more specific your answer is going to be, right? So I want to ask this question. I want to start by looking at Jesus because Jesus made some pretty bold and even ridiculous claims, He claimed to be the one and only Son of God. He claimed that he would die for our sins. He claimed that he would rise from the dead. And if any of that's true, then we should be able to trust what he says. Well, if you don't know this about Genesis, we believe that what Jesus has done and what Jesus says is true. So I want to ask this question in this way. If I'm asking for a friend, what does Jesus say about heaven and hell? What does Jesus say? I'm really curious about what Jesus says about heaven and hell. And as it turns out, he talks about heaven and hell a lot throughout Scripture. There's lots of different places we can go. We're going to visit lots of different passages today. But we're going to start by looking at a story that he told in Luke chapter 16. So if you want to follow along in the Bibles around the room, we're going to be on page 730. But in Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, Jesus tells a familiar story. You've probably heard it before, and it goes like this. It starts like this. Luke 16, 19, Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. So here in this story, we meet two men, a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man does what rich men do, right? He went out and got some nice, fancy purple clothes because a Guess that's what you did in the first century when you were rich. He probably drove a really sweet camel. He had all the things that rich people had. He lived it up. But then there's this poor man, and we learn his name is Lazarus. He is so poor, he wanted to eat the leftovers that the rich man didn't eat. I mean, guys, how hungry do you have to be to want to eat somebody's leftovers? That's pretty gross. And the only friends, apparently, that this poor man has are the dogs that come and lick his open sores. I mean, that's pretty disgusting. You got a guy that's living it up, living the high life, and you got a guy that's like a low life in social, in social circles, right? So those are our two people. But look at what Jesus says in Luke 16, 23. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. Now, you might be wondering, who's this Abraham guy? Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation, and in this picture, he kind of plays the God figure. He's not God, but that's where he comes from. And so the, the rich man, he looks up, and he sees Abraham and Lazarus hanging out. He's down there in torment, and we learn something very important. After both of these men die... They both go to two separate and apparently very different places. The poor man goes to a place called Abraham's side at a heavenly banquet. And I think this is a good place. The angels take him there. It's in heaven. There's food, right? It it sounds like it's a good place to be. But meanwhile, did you notice that it says the rich man died? They buried his body in the ground, and he's in a place of torment. It doesn't sound very good. We get the idea that there's a place that's up that's good and a place that's down that's bad. And the bad place is described as being miserable. The guy says he's in anguish. Look at verse 24. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, 
have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip his finger into the water and come cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. He's not just in a bad place. He's in a really bad place. But Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted. And Lazarus had nothing. So now he's here being comforted and you were there in anguish. And besides, and listen to this, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. Now again, we learn that wherever the rich man is, he's hot, he's thirsty, and there's flames. He's not like at an all-inclusive resort in Mexico somewhere. This is a rough place. And Lazarus, is at this place of comfort. But the, maybe the most important detail that Jesus gives us in this story, he says, there's this great chasm and no one can cross over. So after life, wherever you go, there's no exit door. It's like the Hotel California. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Now this is an intriguing story and it raises up all kinds of questions, but there's one very, very, very important thing that we learn from Jesus here and it's this. Jesus taught... And believed that everyone would spend eternity after life somewhere. Jesus taught that everyone would spend eternity somewhere. Now let's be honest and admit that's probably not new information for a lot of us, right? In fact, it's important to note that Jesus' belief in heaven and hell as real places was it lined up with what other first century rabbis taught as well. Jesus isn't introducing a new idea here. But what we do need to take away from this story is that Jesus believed and taught that there is more to this life than what we see and experience on earth. And as it turns out, no matter how rich or poor you are right now, death will be the great equalizer for all of us. And according to Jesus, after a death, we're going to arrive at one of two places, a place of blessing or a place of punishment. And here's what's interesting to me. For whatever reason, in this story, Jesus doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about the place of blessing. I mean, I always think of Jesus as being a glass half full kind of guy, like he's always positive. He doesn't focus on that. Instead, he uses numerous words like anguish and torment to describe and stress the fact that this place of punishment has definite pain associated with it. And that just seems weird to me, but I learned something that I had never known before as I was preparing for this sermon on heaven and hell. No other person in Scripture stressed the reality of hell as the final consequence of God's judgment and condemnation more than Jesus. Think about that. I mean, I would expect Jesus to talk more about love, grace, mercy, all those things. And he did. He talked about those a lot. But no one, Old Testament or New Testament, no one talked about the reality of hell in the Bible, more than Jesus. And throughout the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he talked a lot about hell. He gave vivid descriptions of what it would be like. In Matthew 13, he describes hell as a fiery furnace where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 8, he uses the images of people being thrown into outer darkness, stressing that it's a place of great sorrow, loss, and misery. And again, these images of everlasting fire and eternal punishment, they line up with what other first century rabbis would teach. And one, one time Jesus likened hell to parenting. And he said it was like the nonstop bickering of siblings that refuse to say thank you to their parents for what they have, but instead they complain about what they don't have and they fight about everything else all the time. Jesus never said that. 
But when I was at home one day preparing for this, that's what was happening a few rooms away. And I thought, you know, if Jesus had kids, he would have said that. He would have said, hell is like bickering siblings, right? He didn't say that. He actually gave a worse picture. Maybe the strongest description that Jesus gave comes from Matthew 25, 41, where he describes hell as a place of eternal fire that has been, now listen to this, prepared for the devil and his angels. It's prepared for the enemies of God. And in verse 46, he refers to it as a place of eternal punishment. Now, I don't know about you, that sounds more terrible than anything you and I could ever imagine or anything we're ever going to experience here on earth. And there's some pretty awful things that we can experience on earth. And Jesus didn't shy away from hell being a real place that we would want to avoid at all costs. But it wasn't just Jesus that talked about the reality of hell. His followers also talked about the reality of hell. The Apostle Paul, if you didn't know this, the Apostle Paul is credited with writing 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. And here's what's interesting. In all of Paul's letters, never once does he use the word hell. Isn't that fascinating? Never once. You would think that he's trying to avoid the subject. But while he never used the word hell once, he described people's fate apart from Christ as a spiritual death that comes from the result of our sins. And according to Paul, the unrepentant sinner, these are some of the words he would use, stands condemned and will be judged by God on account of his sins. And unless the sinner repents and turns to Christ, he would be punished by God when Christ returns. In his 13 letters, Paul made 83 references using words like punish, condemned, and judged. Francis Chan notes that to put it in perspective, Paul made reference to the fate of unrepentant sinners more times in his letters than he mentioned forgiveness, God's God's forgiveness, mercy, or heaven combined. So Paul was a lot like Jesus. Even though he didn't use the word hell, he believed in a horrific fate for anyone that would die apart from Christ. Some of Paul's strongest words come from 2 Thessalonians 1 where he said this, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, I don't don't know about you. That sounds like a very serious warning about a very real, eternal reality. But just in case Jesus and Paul aren't convincing enough, Jesus' follower, John, wrote the book of John and 1 and 2 John and 3 John in Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, listen to what John writes. Listen to this vivid description. They too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and there will be no more rest day or night. Now, I know what you're thinking. I can see it on your face. You're thinking, Jerry, keep going. This feels so good. I'm warm and fuzzy all over. I mean, tell me more about hell, right, Jerry? But let's be honest. I mean, this is, this is heavy. And if Jesus and if Paul and if John are telling the truth, well, there's like very real eternal consequences. And, and I, by the way, I do think that they're telling the truth. So what, what, do we, what do we do for that? I mean, it just seems like a lot of bad news. Well, thankfully, there's some good news. Because even though Jesus taught that everyone would spend eternity of one of two places, thankfully, we also know this. Jesus never told anyone to go to hell. We never see Jesus tell anyone to go to hell. And there's no doubt that he thought that hell was real. 
He didn't mince words when it came to warning people about just how awful it would be. But in spite of all of his seemingly harsh teachings on hell, we never find Jesus condemning anyone to hell. Instead, he did the opposite. In fact, Jesus is known for making a pretty famous quote. You've probably heard it before. It's on this subject. It comes from John chapter 3 when Jesus said this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And in these verses, Jesus acknowledged there's a place of punishment and there's a place of blessing, but he says people don't have to perish in that place of punishment. Instead, they can have eternal life with God in heaven. And I love verse 17. I mean, he spells it out so clearly. He makes it clear that God did not send him here to condemn all of us to go to hell. Instead, he sent Jesus to rescue us from the penalty of hell so that we can enjoy the blessing of heaven. Now, I want you to think about that. The whole reason Jesus came was to help make heaven a reality for every one of us that is destined to go to hell. And while Jesus taught that hell is a place of punishment, condemnation, and eternal separation from God, he also taught that heaven is a place of eternal security and love and joy that flows from God himself. When describing heaven, Jesus used the metaphor of a marriage supper and a wedding feast. There will be music, there will be dancing, there will be food, there will be a party, there will be a celebration. That's the image that he gave us of heaven. But the best words that he used to describe heaven, he said this, it's his father's house. Now for some of us, the image of our father's house might seem a lot more like hell than heaven, especially if you come from a dysfunctional family. But when Jesus talks about his heavenly father, he's talking about his perfect, loving, heavenly Father, he's saying there's going to be a party and I want to invite you. You won't want to miss it. Jesus told his followers before he went to heaven, he said this, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not true, I wouldn't have told you and I'm going to go and prepare a place for you there. So here's the idea. Right now, in his resurrected, glorified state, Jesus is preparing a room for all of us that trust in him. I have no idea what it's going to look like, but I think it's going to be amazing. That's a promise that he made. Now, one of my favorite pastors, Bob Russell, he speculates about what some of these other rooms in heaven might be like. He speculates that maybe there'll be a media room where you'll be able to go and watch film from all the greatest events in history. Not like a reenactment or a movie, but you'll be able to rewatch the actual events as they took place. That'd be kind of cool. Maybe there'll be a recreation room where you'll be able to sign up for tours of the universe. You'll be able to go anywhere you want. You'll be able to visit anywhere that's been intriguing to you to the farthest reaches of the universe. Or maybe you're like me in the recreation room. I'm gonna sign up and learn how to play golf and guitar because I'm not good at either of those things here. And I'm hoping in heaven I get a little better. Maybe there'll be a classroom where you can go and learn about all the things that puzzled you here on earth. You can ask all your hard questions. You can say, hey, God, exactly, how was the Grand Canyon foreman? And can you tell me, like, what happened to the dinosaurs? Where did they go? One of the questions I have in God's classroom, I'm going to raise my hand, and I'm going to say, Lord, I've got lots of questions. Here's my first, though. Why were the patriots in Kentucky allowed to be so successful? It just, it's not fair. It's wrong. It's wrong. And then I'll ask other more important questions. But whatever heaven is like, we don't know what heaven's going to be like, but whatever heaven is like, it's going to be amazing. 
It'll be a place of eternal discovery. We will never get bored. We will never run. We will never even fully understand who God is. And one of the coolest things about heaven is Jesus will be there in person. God the Father will be revealed to us in person. We will be with him and everything will be right. Now, I don't know about you. That sounds exciting. I'm ready to go whenever he's ready to come and get us, right? And maybe some of you are saying, yeah, me too. How do I sign up? Where do I go? Where do I sign on the dotted line? Well, Jesus said this. He said, the path to heaven is very narrow. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. He said, there's two roads. You can be on any road. One's really wide and one's really narrow. But then in John 14, Jesus says, I I will tell you how to get to the narrow path. In John 14, Jesus said this, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets to go to my Father's house. No one gets to experience heaven except through me. Jesus claimed the only way for us to avoid hell and to get to heaven is through him. Now, for those of us that are Christians, we nod and think, yes, And you're good with that because you believe that he's done something for you that you couldn't do for yourself. But let's just just acknowledge the reality that there are probably people here that are curious about Jesus. And we're really glad you're here. You're welcome. And all your questions are welcome. But maybe you think about Jesus and you're thinking, man, that's just really exclusive and narrow-minded. It's even offensive. Like, how how could Jesus say that? How can people believe that's true? And I get that. But what if he's telling the truth? What, what if he's just trying to warn us of something terrible that's coming? Now, I remember being there. I remember at 20 years old being there. I, could, I can tell you distinctly when this became a reality for me. I grew up in a great home. My parents always took us to church, and we were taught there's one God in heaven. Jesus is his son. He died to pay for my sins. He arose from the dead. If the doors were open, we were there. I, I believe that. I was okay with that. But as I got into high school and college, I just started going through the motions because that's what good people did. I wanted to be a good person and I wanted to treat people well. So I did what good people do. And then I met this beautiful girl who would eventually become my wife and she invited me to go to church with her and they did something different at church. They actually opened up the Bible and like talked about Jesus like he was a real person. And I just noticed that her family was a little different. And one night in, uh, in their living room, my, my mother-in-law, who has gone to be with the Lord since, but we were sitting there one night and she was just very lovingly asking me questions about what I believed. She wasn't being offensive. She wasn't being rude. And she just said, well, Jerry, what do you believe about Jesus' return? And guys, I'm not gonna lie to you. I didn't know he was coming back. And this sweet woman was asking me questions and all of a sudden I realized, I think Jesus is real to her, like real. He knows her and she knows him. And when she asked me about Jesus' return, I was frozen. And I realized if he were to return right then, I would go to hell. I, I mean, I knew it. Like, in my mind, Jerry, you would go to hell. And she was being as loving and as kind as she knew how. And it was shortly thereafter that I decided that Jesus was exactly who he says he is. And I surrendered my life to him, not in fear, but in joy, because I, I learned He's real and he wants us to experience him. 
and, and he had done something for me that I could never do for myself. So maybe you find yourself standing on the edge of that cliff and you're investigating who Jesus is. We are so glad that you're here. I'm not going to twist your arm. But I want to encourage you to be very careful with what you do with your life. Drive carefully. Be wise with what you do because if what Jesus says is true, when our days are over here, we're going to go to one of two places. And he invites us to, in, to join him in heaven, but only if we're willing to trust in him. Bob Russell says this, one, of the most, one, of the, uh, one important fact that, about heaven that most people miss is that most people, the majority of people, won't go there. There was a survey that was done of Americans. 85% of Americans felt like they were going to heaven, and when they were asked why, you know what they said? It's the same answer I would tell you when I was 20 years old. I'm a good person. I've lived a good life. Well, according to the Apostle Paul, that's not a good answer. In Romans 3, the Apostle Paul says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all. Everyone. Every one of us have sinned. Our sin is anything that we do that is not pleasing to God. And when we sin, it damages our relationship with God. We're separated from him. And then in Romans 6.23, he says the wages of our sin, what we earn for our sin is death. And this isn't just physical death. This is spiritual death. This is spiritual death and separation apart from God for all eternity. What makes heaven heaven is the fact that God is there. What makes hell hell is the fact that God is not there. And Paul says we are all destined for that. But then he finishes Romans 6, 23, and he says this. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thankfully, Jesus not only claimed to have power over sin and death, he proved it when he rose from the dead. We celebrated it a week ago on Easter Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection and the life that Jesus gives us. So when he says that he's made a way for us to be right with God, he is inviting us to trust in him to do what only he could do. And he proved it by coming back from the dead. No other religious, religious leader can make that claim. Moses, Buddha, Muhammad, they all died. They stayed dead. Only Jesus came back from the dead. So maybe you're wondering, well, how, how can I begin following Jesus? What, what does this look like? Paul says it's really easy. You just have to admit you're like everybody else. You have sinned. You've damaged your relationship with God. And once you've done that, he invites, Jesus invites us, Paul invites us, John invites us to put our trust in Jesus, to believe in Jesus. And it's not just saying, okay, I believe that Jesus is God's son. It's not that. It's saying, I believe that Jesus has done something for me. When he died, he paid for my sins so that I could be made right with God as my heavenly father. If you think you can get to heaven all on your own, Essentially, what you're saying is, I can swim from the coast of California to Hawaii. It's impossible. You will drown, you will die, or you will get eaten along the way. The same is true trying to get to heaven on our own. We cannot do it. But when we confess we're a sinner, when we put our trust in Jesus, we're saved. Paul says this in Romans 10, 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Last weekend, we celebrated 15 people that made that declaration. They went down into the water, dying to their old life. They were raised to new life in Christ. This week, I got to talk to somebody else that's flirting with that decision, and I'm excited and praying for them. But maybe you're here today, and maybe you feel the Spirit talking to you, saying, what are you going to do with Jesus? You don't know how much time you have. I don't know how much time I have. He's making an offer to us. It's really interesting to me that at the end of Luke 16, 
that, that story with Abraham and Lazarus and the rich man. Listen to what the rich man says when he realizes he can't get out of hell. He says, then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send, my father, uh, send Lazarus to my father's home. I have five brothers and I want to warn them so they don't end up in this torment. He starts asking for a friend. Please send someone to talk to my brothers. Abraham says this, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. Basically, he says, what's true about God is revealed in their word. They have the same standard that everybody else has. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham, and listen to these words, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. That's exactly what Jesus claimed to do. That's exactly what we believe to be true. He rose from the dead to prove that all of his claims are true and accurate. If you are not in Christ, we welcome your questions. Talk to somebody before you leave today. Find me, find Steve. Talk to the person that you came with. If you are in Christ, use the reality of heaven and hell to motivate you to pray for people that don't know him. Because we're not just supposed to coast into heaven. Jesus said we are to go and make disciples to share our faith, to make it real, to win others to Christ. If this is true, and I believe it is, eternity hangs in the balance. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for the gift of your word. And I love that you've revealed a lot of things to us. There's things that you reveal that are fun and exciting, and there's things that are just heavy, and this is one of those topics that's it's heavy. But your story begins that in the beginning you created everything perfectly, and then mankind rebelled against you. And even then you said, I promise I'm going to send someone to make it right. We believe his name is Jesus. Jesus, we worship you and we thank you and we praise you that you have come to help us avoid the penalty of hell, to experience the blessing of heaven. Would you help all of us that are Christ followers to live that out? And if there's anyone here today that is not in you, Holy Spirit, speak to their heart and draw them to you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.